prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you and that we are grateful that we have this day to cease from our work, to gather together as your people, to hear from your word how we can live the abundant life that you've called us to live in Jesus Christ. And I ask, Lord, that would be the case for each and every one of us as we look at your word this morning. That you would think our thoughts, that my words would be yours, that you would bend each and every one of our wills to your own, and you would take all of our hearts and set them on fire with love for you and for your Son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, in April of 1970, some of us remember when the Apollo 13 mission was an utter failure, had to come back early, and they had very little power. They had to burst the engines for a while and cut them off, and burst the engines for a while and cut them off in order to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere at just the right angle. And as my friend Ray Salmi educated me this week, we had to come in between 5.3 degrees and 7.7 degrees. Because if we came in too shallow, the capsule would have bounced off the Earth's atmosphere and would have gone out into outer space forever. That's it. If they came in too steep, entering the Earth's atmosphere, it would have utterly burned up the capsule. Not too steep, not too shallow. They had to hit the exact target. and Thank God they did. It was an engineering marvel. I encourage you to see the movie if you've never seen Apollo 13. But they had to hit the bullseye or utterly fail. Well, we're in this series that's entitled Worship the Father in Spirit and Truth. And we're in this for at least another month because we want to hit the bullseye right. Amen in an effort that we as a congregation, not only as we gather on Sunday mornings, but even in our personal worship times, our devotional times, we are worshiping the Lord in spirit and truth. Because we've learned that, haven't we? We've learned what worship is. That worship is something we do all the time. And that it's really just a matter of proportion. Because what we truly desire is intimacy with the infinite. And therefore, we don't want to treat the Lord like that lost piece of valuable jewelry, sticking it in the upper drawer. No, we pull it out, we put it in a safe, and we value it, we admire it, we thank God for it. And we use the image of playing with G.I. Joes and Barbies, right? That we tend to keep playing with our G.I. Joes well into old age, when really what we could have had was the real deal in a relationship with Christ. And last week we learned why we do this. Because it's not that God seeks us to worship Him for His benefit, but it's totally for ours. Because He knows as we worship Him this way, we are most fully who we're called to be in Him. Now I know that there are more than likely some of you who after all these years, you think to be a Christian means to curb my appetites that it's really no fun to be a Christian. I have to hem myself in. I have to limit myself. My desires are too strong. And God comes along and says, no, no, they're not. Your desires are too weak. See, we mess around with money, sex, and power when infinite joy is offered to us. So the question that we are addressing today is, okay, we know what worship is. We know why we're supposed to worship, but how? 
I invite you to open up your Bibles. For the last time, we're going to look at the Samaritan woman. I promise for a while. We'll walk through John one year. But I really wanted to camp here for a few weeks because there's so much we can learn from this narrative. Because what we're going to learn, which what we really have mentioned all three weeks, is that we worship, how we worship the Lord is in spirit, in truth, hitting the right target. All right, In spirit and in truth, hitting the right target. First of all, if we want to worship the Lord, we worship Him in spirit. All right? God seeks people who will worship Him, verse 23, in spirit. And the Greek is quite clear here. It does not say in the spirit, but in spirit. In other words, Jesus is not talking about worshiping in the Holy Spirit. He's talking about worshiping in the human spirit that each and every one of us has. God is looking for us to worship Him in the very depth of our inner being. In spirit. Authentic worship happens only when the very core of our being is employed in the worship of God revealed to us in Jesus Christ. Outward appearance may or may not be worship, right? Charles Spurgeon once said, God does not regard our voices, he hears our hearts. And if our hearts do not sing, we've not sung at all. Sometimes we sing, but we do not worship. Sometimes we pray with our lips, but worship does not take place. Sometimes we give, but we do not worship. And sometimes we do none of these things, but we're in the deepest of worship. Outward circumstances cannot determine the authenticity of our worship. One could conceivably kneel in the most beautiful of cathedrals, listen to the most concise biblical liturgy, and participate in a beautiful sung choral evensong, and still not be truly worshiping. Now this is not to say that externals are not helpful. Generally, I think C.S. Lewis was right when he said that the best church service is the one we least notice. Kent Hughes says it this way, As long as you notice and have to count the steps, you are not yet dancing but only learning to dance. A good shoe is a shoe you don't notice. Good reading becomes possible when you need not consciously think about eyes or light or print or spelling. The perfect church service would be the one we are almost unaware of and our attention would have totally been on God. So to worship in spirit is to worship with all of our inner being and the core, very core of our being, both personally and corporately. Secondly, we're called to worship the Lord in truth. Truth means that we're to worship what is true about God. In other words, worshiping truth occurs when we worship in accordance with what God has revealed about himself. The opposite is also true. That true worship does not take place when we worship in accordance with what God has not revealed about himself. So what we think about God is of great importance. You know, saying and subscribing to the Apostles or Nicene Creed is virtuous, but it is possible to mouth the words of a creed and mean something entirely different about them. 
the truth is, the most important thought humans can entertain is, what is God like? What comes to our minds when we think about God? Our answer not only affects our worship, but our everyday lives, does it not? Every failure in worship or belief or practice can be traced back to very wrong thoughts about who God is. Wrong thoughts about God were the source of Cain's failure to worship God as he should. Genesis chapter 4, somehow Cain supposed, to be, supposed God to be something other than he was. And he brought a sacrifice that fit that misconception. Cain distorted the truth about God, about his wisdom, his omniscience, his goodness. And as a result, he brought the wrong sacrifice. And likewise, to participate in or to lead a U2 Eucharist or a Beyonce Eucharist in a beautiful cathedral where no scripture is read, you know, no exposition suggests a grave departure from the revelation God has given himself in the scripture. When the church's concept of God in any way blurs the view of who God truly is, our lives will show it. And what happens is there's no difference between the way the church lives and between the way the world lives. And when that is the case, the culture is hurt because of it. We see it in our culture now, don't we? All right? I haven't seen the country so divided since the late 60s when I was a little kid. And yeah, I'm concerned about our country. But I'm more concerned about the church. And I don't know what the Lord wants to do with America, but I know what he wants to do with Christchurch. Okay? To revive our hearts. And when we see God for who he is and what he requires, and when we subscribe to those things in the very depth of our being, and we take very seriously our relationship with him and our relationship with one another, what a blessing that is to our culture. See, wrong thinking about God is in fact an idolatry. And because an idolatrous heart assumes God to be something other than he really is. And do not think that we are free from idolatry just because we don't bow down to little images. A wrong conception of God in any way is the root of idolatry. Paul says in Romans 1, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Instead, they created images. Idolatry simply begins with a wrong idea of who God is. And we see that in 21st century America, don't we? Most people think of God as either some cosmic ground of being force. And when you conceive of God in that way, we worship Him with cold, impersonal reverence. People do that every Sunday. On the other hand, most people conceive of God as some heavenly buddy. Everything in the religious life is essentially centered on me and what God can do for me. And God becomes some kind of cosmic slot machine. That once I put the coins in the slot with a little few, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Philippians 4.13, stick it in my pocket, and I pull it out when I need him. And when I pull him out, guess what? 
as I've said it often in the last month and a half, that God looks just like me. Pocket Jesus. But God wants his people to worship him for who he really is. As Jesus says, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. We must be people of the truth. And the truth is found in his word because the clearest revelation of God is what we have in the word. Later on in John 17, Jesus says, Sanctify them in your truth. Truth, Your word is truth. God's word contains the truth about who God is. Stop looking for it elsewhere. It's right there. We're to be a people filled with the word of God. And when that happens among God's people, the attributes of God, the metaphors of God, the words that so beautifully describe God becomes the music of our hearts. Not only do we need to be people of the word, but we also need people who think about it as we go about our days. See, worship is not a mindless activity. It includes mental interaction with what is true about God. So we need to develop the ability to hold contrasting truths about God in devotional tension. On the one hand, we see God as He is, the mighty, eternal, transcendent Creator who holds all the universe together, Hebrews 1.3, and at the same time, hold that He's the God. How often I would have gathered your children together as hen gathers her brood under her wings, Matthew 23.37. We must see all we can of God through His Word if we are to worship Him in truth. To worship only one attribute of God and to ignore the others is to not worship Him in spirit and truth. Worship must include the total revelation of who God is. And when this happens, worshiping in truth, idolatrous hearts are purged, our lives bear fruit, and God is pleased. So that's worshiping God in spirit and in truth. But you have to hit the right target. We see this in the Samaritan woman. Samaritan woman found Jesus knew all about her sordid past. And what did she do? She said, I don't get this. I didn't think there were any prophets among the Jews. I thought our religion was the right one. Now I see that you're a prophet. Tell me, do we worship here or there? Where should we worship? Now notice, Jesus doesn't say, you must worship him in the Jewish temple, does he? Even though he admits God's truth and salvation is from the Jews. Does he turn around and say, you can worship him anywhere? No. He doesn't say that either. He doesn't say, oh, God is everywhere, so you can just worship him anywhere. You can worship him on your boat, on your golf course on your hiking trail, at your tailgate, at your kids' sports, travel sports team. He doesn't say any of that, does he? He says, neither here nor there. He says, you don't worship him in that temple or this temple. You worship God through me. 
Because he literally says, the hour is coming. Whenever Jesus says the hour is coming, what does he mean? The cross. What he's saying is, when I die, it will utterly change worship forever. In the book of John, when we see this truth, and anytime we go to worship God, you know what it's like, right? We go to worship God and we're trying to worship God correctly and we start to see, we start to assess His worth. We fill our minds. We discipline ourselves to do that. All of a sudden, you start to see how small you are. How unworthy you are. And that makes us uncomfortable. And we tend to pull back from worshiping God in spirit and truth. So therefore, people start to say things like, well, the reason I don't like religion is because I don't believe in a personal God. Or I don't like all the hypocrites in the church. Or, you know, I can worship God my way. But the real reason we pull back is when everybody tries to worship, you do see how small you are. You do recognize how unworthy you are. And you start to feel, that's not good for my self-esteem. I love the poem by George Herbert and the line that says, Be gone, you wretch. Retreat in shame. 1653. But what Jesus is saying, this is why my hour has changed worship forever. Because although you may feel small, you can come to me. I love you. Come sit at my table by my side. I love you like that. Because it was at his hour, he bore the blame. And what Jesus did was punch a hole in the roof of the sky so you could enter the heavens and worship him and have access to God like that. And the problem is, our worship gets misdirected and we hit the wrong target. And the other aspect we must do is simply discipline ourselves to worship. You may be a little discouraged right now because you say, man, Gene, I hear you talking. I haven't tasted worship like that. Well, it's going to take a little bit of work, a little bit of discipline. How? Well, I've already said it. We worship in spirit and truth. So first, you take the truth of who God is and let it dawn on you. As you're in a worship service, a verse jumps off at the page. Write it down. There's sermon notes right here in the back of the bulletin. All right? Bring a pencil. Bring a Bible. And if God is God of the universe and he is speaking through his word to his people, do you think it's important to write it down? All right? Take, take any verse, anything out of the bulletin, any portion of the psalm we prayed, and dwell on it. Let it dawn on you like a cow chooses cud. Just chew on it, chew on it, chew on it, swallow it, and then spit it back up again. Because what will happen is the truth of God will shine in your heart and in your mind. You'll see what God is worth. And all of a sudden, you'll find the natural instinct is to worship Him. And that's what He's created you to be and to do. And then at the core of your being, you transfer to your spirit. And you'll find yourself giving him your grudges, giving him your fears, 
giving him your parts of your life, giving him your sins, giving him your idols, that little pocket gene of yours. Get rid of him. He's no good. Give him your resources. Give him your time. Give him all of you. It becomes automatic. I took a class at Trinity Seminary. It was entitled Essentials of Evangelical Theology. It was a great class taught by Dr. Gavin McGrath, who's now back in England. And about three times during the semester, he had the original dean president of Trinity come in and substitute for him, Bishop John Rogers. John Rogers is the most intelligent man I've ever met. He's a Naval Academy grad, worked his way up to... What's the rank below Admiral? Yeah, he was a captain. He was a captain. And then went into the priesthood. <laughs> Amazing man. And he became a bishop in the Anglican mission back in the late 90s. So he's teaching us one week on the different atonement theories of the cross. There are a lot of different theories about the cross. Atonement theology, it's called. And so Bishop John is talking about the beauty of the cross, and I swear to you in mid-sentence, he broke out in a beautiful baritone voice, lift high the cross. And we're like, the love of Christ proclaim. And he didn't stop. Till all the world rejoice his sacred name. And we kept singing. So shall our song of triumph ever be. Praise to the crucified for victory. Lift high the cross, the love of Christ proclaim, till all the world adore his sacred name. And we kept singing. He memorized the whole thing. I'm like bumbling for my words, and I'm like, wow. And all of a sudden, you know, it was seminary. I didn't have a job. I didn't know where I was going. The Episcopal Church was crumbling. So less and less jobs would hire a low church evangelical dude who believed like Charles Simeon, Bishop Ryle, and John Rogers, my hero. And all that just disappeared. I went back home because I, I, I lived right across the street on Sherman Street. Isn't that a great name? Sherman Street. The Shermans lived on Sherman Street. It was great. So I, I go, Kimmy, you're not going to believe it. Fifty guys just started to sing along with Bishop Rogers, and we worshipped. That's what happens. You discover God is bigger than my problems. He's going to take care of them, every one of them. It was a worship experience in the middle of essentials of evangelical theology. Reading John Owen and Luther and Calvin. It's a discipline. You've got to work at it. So you let the truth of who God is dawn on you until that truth begins to shine and the worth of who God is sinks in. And Paul talks about this that Steve read. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all with an unveiled face. 
Behold, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. As we were singing, the Spirit just, just fell all over us, didn't he? And we look at his worth, and, we're, and we change. You don't, become, you don't stay the same person. You can't. You're transformed. Because that's exactly what happens to a Samaritan woman. Look at her. She's broken. She's hardened. What happens? She says in verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. <laughs> She's awed. She begins to give Jesus what he's worth. And she has the joy of a kid on Christmas morning. Runs back to the village and says, Come, see a man who told me everything I've ever done. you got to look at him. And she's changed. If you keep reading, <laughs> it's amazing. She says, Verse 39 of chapter 4, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. It works, friends. There may be some of you here this morning who lack this passion of faith in your lives because you underestimate the power of worship to change you. You're not laying aside time for it personally. You're not laying aside time for it corporately on a consistent basis, and you're not putting the discipline into it. And I know some of you are facing tremendous heartache this week, tremendous workplace challenges, family situations, etc. Where are you going to get your sense of proportion from that spiritual G.I. Joe you've been hanging on to all these years? And not by isolating yourself and putting up a barrier and saying, I'm not going to let it get to me. But by looking at Jesus Christ and through who He is, and that's the right target. Not too shallow, not too steep. And you'll get it by worshiping Him. Until you say, yeah, I know life is difficult and something bad may happen to me this week. But that's just like having my pocket picked when I have a treasure sitting in the vault at Key Bank. And for some of you, there may be your next act of real worship will be your first. Go to him right now if you realize that's you. If you sense that you've been trying to approach God, but you've never realized what Jesus has done on the cross for you, ever truly realized, and you're changing, being transformed into who God has called you to be. I encourage you to go to him right now and say, I see now I've been worshiping other things. I want to worship you, Lord Jesus Christ. Everything you've ever really wanted is in the face of Jesus Christ. Psalm 16 that we prayed, in his face your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We prayed that. So friends, come. Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For He is our God. And we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hands. Oh, that today you would listen to His voice. Not too steep. Okay? Not too shallow. 
Let's hit the target of Jesus Christ together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we now ask that every single one of us in this room might be enabled to worship you. And Lord, for some of us, we need to do that during the prayer time, during the offering time, during the rest of this worship time, communion, to reach out and taste and see how lovely and beautiful you are. And to begin to assess the value of all that you've given to us in Jesus Christ. Lord, we want to worship. And we have to do it now. We want to obey this passage now. For some of us are eaten up with anxiety, guilt, depression, anger, great sadness and mourning. And there's no way apart from an unhealthy repression for us to deal with all that unless we wake up to the reality. Until we come and grow up and get a sense of proportion and really worship you, Lord. We want to do that today. And for anyone here who needs to do it for the very first time, I pray, Heavenly Father, you would enable them to come to you through Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.